This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Lauren Roach. Lauren Roach has taught meditation for more than 40 years, developing an approach he calls instinctive meditation which works with each person's uniqueness from the inside out. He has written several popular books, including Meditation Made Easy, and with Sounds True, Lauren has released the audio program Meditation for Yoga Lovers. Lauren Roach has also written a new book with Sounds True called The Radiance Sutras, 112 Gateways to the Yoga of Wonder and Delight. The Radiant Sutras is a book that was originally self-published, passed person to person within the yoga community, and has received comments like this. Here's one from Jack Kornfield, who writes, If you love Rumi, Hafez, the Tao, if you love words dancing out of the mystery, welcome to the Radiant Sutras. These are among the most profound and luminous verses you will ever read. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Lauren and I spoke about the Radiant Sutras and his own unique process of translating the original Sanskrit into inspired poetic renditions and how he felt compelled to work on his compositions during the hours right before dawn. We also talked about his discoveries in listening to thousands of meditators talk about their most intimate meditation experiences. Lauren also read for us three of his favorite of the 112 verses that make up the Radiant Sutras. Here's my conversation with Lauren Roach. Lauren, I want to talk to you about the Radiance Sutras. 112 Gateways to the Yoga of Wonder and Delight. And I noticed that right here at the beginning of our conversation, I feel cautious because this book feels so sacred to me. And you've poured so much heart and soul into these creative renderings of this original text that I just, I want to proceed carefully and right here at the beginning understand from you a little bit your history with the Radiant Sutras and what this text, the original text, the Vijnana Bhairava Tantra, what this text means to you personally. Well, when I, when I was 18, I was working my way through college at the University of California at Irvine. And I had been working in a gas station and then mowing the, the greens 
at Irvine Coast Country Club. And this lab, a physiology lab, was paying good money, more than I made at the golf course. They were paying good money for research subjects. And um, I wound up being a control subject just by the flip of a coin. It was a study, this first study was on brainwaves. And other people got biofeedback. And me, they just paid me to, <laughs> to sit in a completely dark room that was completely soundproofed for hours a day. And fortunately, it was in the afternoon. It was a good time. And so um, I was sitting there in the lab <clears throat> in pitch black and total silence, climate controlled, wired up with wires all over my head and on my hands and sometimes on my chest for a heartbeat. So I couldn't move much, so I had to just be there. And from the very first time, I just melted into silence. It was actually, you know, being a surfer, paddling out at dawn is always kind of scary. You know, it's always weird to paddle out in the dark and just sort of be alone in the ocean with your feet dangling below the board. That's a little bit scary, but being in the dark in in a lab wasn't scary. It was um, at first it was just nothing, and then. To my surprise, I found that I just melted into the blackness, that after a while, after a while, it was my sense of self dissolved into space, and the blackness and the emptiness became almost liquid. It almost felt like... There was something friendly in the nothingness. And I'd never heard of this. I'd never taken drugs. I think I'd heard of marijuana. Um, there was, uh, I was like a loner surfer. I didn't go to parties. Um, and um, I really hadn't heard of meditation either. So, I was just approaching the darkness and silence kind of like somebody who's in nature would approach leaning against a tree and waiting for the sun to rise. You're just sitting there doing nothing. And this experience of silence became very physical where it's like a thought would come where like I would notice, hmm, like I'm really relaxed. And then a couple minutes later, another thought would come, like noticing just a perception of noticing something interesting. 
But between that, I actually had no thoughts. I was just aware. I was aware of existing, and that was it. And I had never heard of such a thing, and I had never experienced this before. And I was happy in there for hours. And the first time after they had um, gotten enough data after two hours, the guy said, okay, that's enough data. I said, I think you better give me a while. And it took me about 45 minutes to reassemble myself before I felt ready to um, come out of the room. And when I walked outside of the lab into um, one of these brilliant afternoons that we have near the beach in California, <clears throat> the world was a, had a beautiful quality that I had never seen before. And people, though living things, glowed from within. I had never seen this. Like the the trees glowed, and people looked incredible to me. Like I and I'd never seen this. And it was really a function of the deep relaxation that I had experienced. I mean, we could we get to say that that's what it feels like when you have no noise in your system. That the world is that luscious. And I went to the lab every day during the week, five days a week, for the better part of a month. And the the experience just stayed pretty much the same, maybe deepened as I got used to functioning in this state. And um, I remember taking calculus tests and writing essays in English class and enjoying how my brain was just functioning beautifully. Like the first time, it was a couple days into the experiment in the lab, and I was taking a calculus test, and I was solving a problem, and in my mind's eye, I glanced over to the left, and I could see in my imagination the page of the textbook where the formula was. And I could see it in my mind's eye and then derive it kind of live and work it and solve the problem. And like, this is great. Because usually I used to get nervous on tests. And I wouldn't, and was, after the test was over, I would remember what the answer was. And this was a really change in style. I became a clutch hitter where I was walking around the world slightly too relaxed and then when there'd be something exciting like a test, it would it would move me up to a more optimal level of functioning. So <clears throat> this it's really relaxation plus all of the senses working. You know, calling it mindfulness is it's just like a cover story, you know, for in, we could well we could maybe call it embodiment. And um, so the experiment went on for maybe three weeks or so. And then the state of deep relaxation and heightened sensing, it lasted for a month or so. And then it started to fade away. And I went, oh, no. <laughs> it's like, oh, no, it's going away. And it was then I started to hear about meditation and, uh, and read books 
and start experimenting with techniques. But I've always believed since then, it's been it's been my sense that meditation happens spontaneously. And I know that in my bones and I've tested that for 45 years with thousands of people. Like I know that people go into meditation spontaneously. Each person in their own way. And for some people, it's watching the dog breathe when he sleeps or she sleeps. And um, after searching desperately for lots of different things reading lots of books and nothing really worked very well i i finally got some coaching on how to develop a daily practice a, med- a daily meditation practice and then lauren bringing us up to your encounter with the vijnana bhairava tantra the text from which the Radiant Sutras are composed, are based on. Well, I, I got a job in the lab. They needed, they needed people to run experiments and wire people up to the brainwave machines and so forth. So I got a job in the lab. And, and at a, there was a staff meeting where the the students and the graduate students that worked in the lab were were all sitting around. And one of the people that worked in the lab had just come back from a, a silent retreat where they were using the first English translation of the Bhairava Tantra as a text. It's in this little book published by the name of Zen Flesh, Zen Bones. And in the back of the book, there's this 14-page section called Centering. And it's, um, it's a translation of the text that Lakshmanju did with this man, Paul Reps, in the 50s. And um, she read a couple of paragraphs from the Bhairava Tantra. And I... I just a light bulb went off inside me. I said, "That, that's it. That whoever wrote that, whoever composed that, they had an experience. They're speaking from the experience that I had in the lab. Like I recognized the voice. And um, she had read <clears throat> a couple of the lines where the goddess is is talking to Shiva. And um, like in that moment, my life changed. Like there was a flash. Like I knew, and I knew someone else had that experience of, of spontaneous, that life is right here and the, the light, this enlightenment is right here. And some people live in it totally but this is something that we all know and have access to. And there's a generous feeling to the text. It is come. You who are seeking, come. 
I am here. I'm always here. Whenever you want, take a breath. I am right here. I'm the breath inside of the breath that you're breathing right now. It's this wonderful, generous, like accepting voice of the text. I'm always here. And something in that just just radiated from the words on the page. So I... I jumped in my Volkswagen bug and went and went and bought the book. <laughs> and I still have that worn out worn out copy. And um later as part of research at the lab I was asked to teach meditation. And then one it was the sixties and one thing left led to the another and um, so people would ask me to teach them to meditate. And because I didn't know what I was doing, I would say something like, well, I would say basically like, well, what makes you interested in meditation? Like what makes you think there is such a thing? And when have you experienced something that feels like meditation? That's what I would say in a more friendly way. And then I would listen. They would say, somebody would say, well, you know, I was golfing. You know, I was out at dawn watching, you know, and one time instead of hitting the ball, I just looked around. And looking at the horizon makes me feel so peaceful. Or I was listening to music. Um, Or I was dancing, and then I lay down and my body was flooded with ecstasy. Or, you know, I was fishing, and I was just watching the light sparkling on the water, and I was transported. Or I was nursing the baby, In the middle of the night, I got up to nurse the baby, and I fell like half asleep with the baby in my arms, and I I dissolved into a kind of ecstasy. Um, So I would just listen to people describe their natural meditative experiences, and then I would open that little 14-page section in the back of Zen Flesh, Zen Bones, the the first translation of the Bhairava Tantra, I would just open it and, and show them one of those practices and say, does that sound like you? And they'd look at it and say, yeah, that's what that's what I experience. And then I would say something like, well, I wonder how we could build a practice around that. I wonder how you could visit that state more consistently. So because I didn't know what I was doing, I hadn't been trained as a teacher yet. I would just listen to people describe to me their own natural gateways into meditation. And in this way, I became more familiar with the way that these 112 meditation techniques not only show up in people's daily lives, but are actually calling to them. And and they discovered that when people come to learn to meditate, it's because they already know. They've already tasted it. Usually many times. Once in a while, it might just be once. Well, I had this one experience. But usually people have had many experiences of meditation 
and is calling them. Their own yearning for union with their own essence is calling them. And my job as a teacher is more like what a voice coach does. The person already is singing. I'm just helping them to bring out their natural voice. So as I listen to people, and I used to do two-hour interviews where I just listened to people until they couldn't talk anymore. (laughs) It's amazing. If you have someone tell you about their greatest experience, like tell me about the a time when you felt utterly at home in the world or utterly delighted to be alive. Tell me about that time. Or or tell me about a problem you're having in your meditation. <laughs> if you listen for two hours, at a certain point a person will just run out of words. They'll be looking at you and they can't say one more word. And they'll they'll just dissolve into silence. They go into samadhi spontaneously, and they're and they'll make up their own meditation practice. They'll actually go into their own native, their own most natural meditation practice. And then you can interview them, find out what they're doing. But I'm I'm wandering a bit. I would listen to people talk about their own natural meditation experiences. And then we would look through the Bhairava Tantra for what sounds like that. And then build their practice in that way. So over the years, this became great fun. (laughs) This sense that people actually have very precise technical knowledge inside of them about what meditation technique to do, and that they actually even can sense the naturalness of it. Now, interestingly, you make this point towards the end of the book where you're talking about tips for people for engaging Mm -hmm. with the sutras. You say, the skills of meditation are the same skills as loving anyone or anything. That's very interesting. I mean, I don't think most people would describe the skills of meditation as being the same as the skills of loving anyone or anything. But as you're yeah. talking, that's that's what is coming up for me. Yeah. And um, when we love, we pay attention and we cherish what it, that we love. We we cherish, we adore that which we love. And so when we love someone or something. We want to pay attention to them. We're, it's an, we're engaged. We delight in the existence of that phenomenon, that dog, that sun, that star, that, that, that arena of sport, skateboarding, whatever our sport is. We, our attention is called to engage with that 
aspect of creation. And a way to, like a quick formula, like E equals MC squared, for what's a meditation technique, is select an aspect of prana that you love so much you want to merge with it. A way of defining meditation is select an aspect of prana or of the life force that you love and be with it. That That's kind of it. You can, there's a lot of steps. There's a lot of micro skills, like the skill of, of loving someone. You know, it's a skill to not wake somebody up in the middle of the night. Or what if they do want to be woken up? Let's say you come home from a trip. Do you wake your lover up at one in the morning, or do you let her sleep? Like, that's a skill. <laughs> and knowing when it's appropriate to do either is a whole skill set. And it's like that with our inner world as well. Now, interestingly, Lauren, in the beginning of the Radiant Sutras, you talk about how the actual name of the Vijnana Bhairava Tantra, loosely translated, means the terror and joy of realizing oneness with the soul. And I thought it would be interesting to hear a little bit about this sense of terror. What's the terror? Well, Bhairava means terrific or terrifying among and a hundred other things. And um, in the tradition that the text comes from, there's a kind of a jargon um, where Abhinavagupta, one of the te- legendary teachers back in the day, he used this phrase, quote, those terrified, unquote, to talk about people who are on the path. It means you wake up to the point you realize, oh my God, the universe is huge and I'm tiny and I'm here for two milliseconds and then I'm gone. Why don't I wake up? And um, the, those terrified, it's like an honor. Like um, It's like you've woken up to realize how little you are and how short time is. And you better get a move on. Um, so that that's a, another meaning of terrified that you're you're contemplating the ter- the terrifying ecstasy that's all all around us at all times. And there's something scary about when you go to see a therapist for the first time, or even every time, or when you go to your first yoga class. Um, when you go, when you have a conversation with somebody and you say, there's something untrue going on here, or you say, I, I love you. It ter- it's terrifying to go up to somebody and say, I-, I love you and let's go out on a date. It's scary to take that step on the path. So Bhairava, I think, means all of those things. And also... 
Bhairava is that aspect of God that accepts our terror as the most sincere form of prayer. That that inside of our fear is this I amness. Inside of our our tremulousness at taking the steps that we need to know that we need to step to take. Inside of that trembling there is an energy and a consciousness of the divine. So right there, when we're taking the scary steps that we need to take, there's the presence of the divine. I think that's another meaning of Bhairava. Now, Lauren, for people who are just hearing about the Bhairava Tantra for the very first time, what do we know about who originally composed this text, what time period, how has it been preserved and passed on to us in its original form? Well, it's a, this is a classic yoga text, and it's, it's beloved because in a succinct form, it, it mentions 112 different pathways into meditation. It showed up as a text apparently around 800 A.D. in Kashmir. And as was the tradition, the the composers attribute the text to Devi, the goddess, and Shiva, or Bhairava. So it's as if they're always singing this in our hearts. Like the text was written down by humans, but the song of it is always vibrating everywhere. And it was preserved through the oral tradition and in writing for how many years is that? 1,200, 1200 some years. And if you had to summarize, and this may be hard, but if you had to summarize what you think the most important philosophical insights, if you will, are of the Bhairava Tantra, what would you say are the big ones, the biggest ones? It's The text says in uh, over a hundred ways, it's right here inside of your most intimate experience is a pathway into meditation. Just answer that call. I mean, if you're running from battle or at a football game where people are screaming, if you're in the middle of sex or you're dancing or you're you're enraptured by a piece of music or you're tasting something incredibly delicious or you're just breathing, you're falling asleep, um you're alone in the middle of the night in a spooky place. In all of these experiences, wherever you are, just pay attention. Just go go right into the experience and then go even deeper and find the places where your own life is calling you. And then keep on going deeper, right into the intensity of experience. Right, Feel every molecule of it.
And the presence of the divine is right here. That's the consistent voice of the text. And it's so always surprising. Like, I'm continually surprised by this text. I don't feel like an expert at the text at all. That's why it's so much fun to go <clears throat> and have everybody else read the Radiant Sutras. Because <laughs> they, they hear it differently than me, and they bring out different tones in it. <laughs> it's always surprising. What I found, too, was that there was a tremendous sensuousness in the way that you are delivering the meeting of the Bhairava Tantra. Do you think that's inherent in the text itself, this tremendous I sensuous do. quality? It's, it's inherent. And to, I, mean, I primarily use the full dictionary definition of each Sanskrit word. And there's often juicy images and and funny puns and and wacky um, metaphors inside each word. Like the definition definition of kama, which is in sensual desire, would also includes it's a temple. A temple, and and when we're when we're in love, especially erotic love, it feels like being in a temple in happy erotic love. It's like I'm in a temple. And another another phrase in the definition is a stake in gambling. And doesn't it feel like a gamble to be in erotic love? There's a I, I love that it's it's sensuous pleasure, a temple, and a stake in gambling. <laughs> so all of the Sanskrit words tend to be packed with with um, meaning like that. Well, it's interesting, too, that the entire text is a dialogue between lovers. Yeah. Yeah, and there's layers of puns. Um, sometimes after um, I read the text over and over again, like I'll sp every few years I'll spend three or four months just thinking in the text in Sanskrit all day long every day for months. And... I'll get to a state where I can hear the jokes because there's like, there's a pun, there's puns within the sentence, but then at another level, it's making fun of the whole idea of what it's doing. And I'll just be la walk around laughing for days because of, there's so many intricate, um, almost like scrabble jokes inside of the Sanskrit where like the word used to talk about chakras um, might have something about melting, and then it has a, a meaning. It means a, it, to delight in anything. I'm just reading the dictionary. And embrace. In music, kind of time. And the union of song, dance, and instrumental music. So that, that, That's just reading the definition of a word that's often associated with chakras. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. 
produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive two free gifts just for visiting us. Just go to soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. That's soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. And now, back to Insights at the Edge. Now, Lauren, you write that tantric texts want to be performed. They're not comfortable being hidden in books. And uh, given that, I wonder if you would be willing to read us one or two of your favorite verses from the Radiant Sutras. Okay. So this is um, 98. which starts with the word bhakti. Bhakti Udraka Viraktasya Yadrashe Jayate Mati Sa Shakti Shankari Nityam Bhavayat Tam Tata Shiva. Be wildly devoted to someone or something. Cherish every perception. At the same time, forget about control. Allow the beloved to be herself and to change. Passion and compassion, holding and letting go, this ache in your heart is holy. Accept it as the rise of intimacy with life's secret ways. Devotion is the divine streaming through you from that place in you before time. Love's energy flows through your body toward a body and into eternity again. Surrender to this current of devotion and become one with the body of love. Beautiful. Now, before we hear another one of the verses from the Radiant Sutras, I'd love to know a little bit more of your process of the translation from the original Sanskrit. How did you approach each one of these 112 verses? Well, uh, I'll usually I'll take up the whole floor. I'll write out in big letters the definitions of each word. <clears throat> and there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. There's a lot of words in this one, it's shorter. So there's about 14 words in this 32 syllables. So I'll take each word and make a series of cards 
on the floor with the images inside each word. I'll actually write out the full definition. And I use the Monier Williams primarily, the Monier Williams Sanskrit English Dictionary. And then I'll write out different throwaway comments, usually Lakshmanju, the Swami from Kashmir, who was the master of this text in in the 20th century. Um, I'll, any comments that he's made, I'll, I'll put those. And I'll I'll spread it spread it out on the floor, and walk around inside of it, and then chanting the Sanskrit, so that I'm holding my attention on all the layers of meaning of each word, and listening to the sound structure and the rhythm. And you know sometimes sometimes it's weeks go by, and I don't get a line of English that sounds as good as the Sanskrit. And other times it's immediate, I'll get one line or two lines, and like, oh, that works, that clicks. But then the rest of the of the verses, it, it can take months, where um, it's like, no, that's not it, that doesn't work on the page, it doesn't work. Like as a, as um, what I'm calling a sutra. And, and some of them, some of them come right away, like, oh, just, I'm hearing the voice of the text. And so, um, and then sometimes the sutra will wake me up in the morning at, at, at four in the morning with the Sanskrit written in, in the yawn <laughs> and say, come, come, Lauren, like dogs saying, go for a walk. The Sanskrit says, come, <laughs> let's play. And I'll, I'll come out into the living room office and, and walk around. So actually I do most of the work standing and walking around at four to six in the morning before dawn and listening. It's it's a special time for Sanskrit and um and I'll just I'll just let the Sanskrit become part of my blood so that it's singing itself to me. And then I'll pray, will you please give me some English? It's like, hey, I've been showing up here for a month. Give me, give me something. And then, and then other times, you know, this happens to all writers. It it starts flowing. It says, okay, you, and then it won't stop for days, and you, you risk total exhaustion. And I usually, I'll usually do maybe a hundred different versions of each verse of the Sanskrit. Wow. And some of them are, because there's so many images in the Sanskrit. And um, the one that's in the book is just, for some reason, it looks good on the page. It works as, I don't know if this is, I don't know if this is poetry. I mean, I wish that I had studied poetry. This is just easy on the eye, on the page. Um and um, sometimes the other verses that aren't published are much more entertaining, but they stray too far from the um, from the, uh, the the Sanskrit. It begs to be played with, though. It's clearly the text just wants to be played with. Now, Lauren, have you studied Sanskrit in terms of reading it and? speaking Sanskrit, or are you working more with these 
dictionary definitions and images and then writing your own creative poem? I'm working with the dictionary definitions of each word, and I'll, I consult Sanskrit scholars over the decades. Um, what do you think of this? And Because some of the... They, they compress... The Sanskrit is, is compressed to fit into 32 syllables per verse. And where they... They dissolve word boundaries. There's things that I have to check. But by and large, the text uses um, classical Sanskrit. And so you can just look it up in the Sanskrit dictionary. And um, so this is a different approach. My approach to working with the text is different than, say, the Indologists. There's people that are trained in historical criticism when, when people learn Sanskrit, they might be in the tradition of historical criticism. So they're, they're trained to approach the text as Western people in a university looking at a historical document. And so they have a tradition of scholarship, and I've read all of their stuff, and I love it. Um, then there's people that are... Western scholars like with PhDs or master's degree in Indology or Sanskrit or whatever. And they also practice the techniques. And so there's there's different traditions. My approach is the semantic field where I studied anthropology and for one of my jobs as an undergraduate and one of one of the things I did for many years in my PhD program was a specific type of interview where you ask somebody who's an expert, what does this word mean? It's called an elicitation interview. And it's similar to creating a dictionary where you ask someone who's an informant, who's an expert in the field, well, what does this word mean? and then you write down what they say. And what you get is a is something that actually looks like the Sanskrit dictionary. You get a um, a set of images and applications. So I'm approaching the Sanskrit as if it's written from experience. I'm, I'm approaching the definitions of the Sanskrit words as if they're the giving clues to the experience of med, med, that meditation technique. And I spent thousands and thousands of hours listening to meditators as part of research projects. Well, tell me, what do you feel when you're inside your breathing? What do you feel when you're doing this technique? What do you, how do you experience the chakras? How do you experience the energies flowing in your body? What happens when the mantra you're listening to dissolves into silence? So I spent thousands and thousands of hours interviewing meditators and writing down, making notes on their experience. And there's a similarity between the way people sound when they're in the midst of their meditation experience and the imagery in the Sanskrit words used to describe that experience. 
that's really all I'm saying. It's kind of obvious when you put it that way. So I'm a meditation teacher and someone with a Ph.D. in the semantic structure of meditation experience. And I what's the structure in the language when meditators are speaking of their inner world? And as that, I'm listening to the Sanskrit. So that's my, those, those are the domains that I bring. And it's very it's different than, say, what a, a professor sure. of Sanskrit at a university might call it a, um, a rendition of the text. Sure. Now, Lauren, you mentioned that you composed your translations in the pre-dawn quiet and that that was uh, important for some reason. Tell me why you think that was important. It's um, this this hour of Brahman. It's there's something that happens before dawn. There's a kind of buzz. There's a vibe in the air that's good for this kind of work. And so, almost all of the work. It's been started, if I work all day, I still like started at four in the morning. And and so it's, I'm there, and the only thing that's happening is the Sanskrit humming in my blood. And so I'm, I'm stone cold sober. I'm letting the Sanskrit feed me and entertain me and keep me awake. So I'm, I'm really hanging suspended in the blackness with nothing but the music of the Sanskrit to entertain me and enchant me. And then then I start to engage the intellectual component of, all right, here's this series of words. Like, why did the composers pick that word? Why did they start with bhakti? And um, and then I, I let the, the spirit of the Sanskrit, the spirit of the text, infuse the academic part where i'm i'm basically letting these images in the sanskrit arrange themselves into english words on the page it's i just think it would be very different say to do the translation late at night it's just i can't imagine originating this stuff late at night. I don't know why. Okay, let's hear another one of your favorite verses from the Radiant Sutras. Well, this is 16, and it starts with the word pranava, which is a nickname of Om. And it's, um, it has the sense of um, a shout of joy or exuberance. The roar of joy that set the world in motion is reverberating in your body and the space between all bodies. 
beloved, listen. Find that exuberant vibration, rising new in every moment, humming in your secret places, resounding through the channels of delight. Know you are flooded by it always. Float with the sound. Melt with it into divine silence. The sacred power of space will carry you into the dancing, radiant emptiness that is the source of all. The ocean of sound is inviting you into its spacious embrace, calling you home. Now, at one point, Lauren, you talk about these 112 gateways as being practices for entering divine perception. And I wonder if you can tell us what you mean by that, divine perception. Well, I'm not sure what I mean by that. It's somehow, like I try not to use the word God, and so I think it's used once in the sutras. And divine came because it's an honor to the way that um, Lakshmanju, who is the Swami, who is the custodian of this text, and Jaidev Singh, one of his um, disciples, I guess, they talk about it as divine awareness. And um, the the term divine awareness is like it's, Im- it's implied in the Sanskrit, Shiva, and the goddess being divine. So um, I just, it felt like I had to use that word a couple, once or twice. And in this context, it's like the sense that life is infinitely precious. I think everybody has their own sense of the divine. Um, it's a reverence. I think divine consciousness is a reverence for the mystery of things. It's is a reverence for the existence of bodies and individuals and mountains and and things of this planet. Now in the last section of the book, you offer tips for engaging with the mm-hmm. hundred and twelve verses. Mm-hmm. And I thought it would be good to go over a couple of these tips because I think they're interesting. And so I'm going to call a couple out and uh, see what kind of commentary you might have. So the first one that I I thought would be interesting to highlight is respect the power of your love. Mm -hmm. How will that help me engaging with the Radiant Sutras? Respect the power of your love. Well, people... People, if you ask people what do you love, they'll they'll say things like gardening, and you can watch their entire body change. It's like they're on their knees, and what is it? They're on their knees in the garden, tending to little to little living things. And so you you build the practice around that, and that style it's the style of awareness, the style of attention, or if you want to call it that, 
It's there's a style of mindfulness people bring to their hobbies and their love. And that's what you want to you build on for your meditation practice. Okay, you had you had another tip here for engaging with the Radiant Sutras to honor your individuality. It's really important to feel free to say no. Like, say no to 111 different meditation techniques like or sutras and just love one. It's okay to just go no and just to hate, to hate like, uh, hate counting the breath or hate sitting still. Um, some people just hate sitting still to meditate. They just do. And you don't want to break them, their spirit. Help them, help them find something that um, they don't hate. So it's our individuality is, is um, to be cherished and only modified. You only op- want to operate on it if absolutely necessary. Like in military, in the boot camp, you know, it's not about your preferences. They break you. They break you down and build you up. And if you join a monastery or a nunnery, the same thing, or in reform school or something like that. But um, day by day, if you have a a house and kids or a dog and people you love and, and um, a job, meditation in general shouldn't be breaking you down. It should be a place to rest and build you up. Because the world beats us down. The world tires us out enough. We don't need meditation to be brutal. So, yeah, for people that are what are called householders or on the path of intimacy, if you want to, whenever possible, indulge your your preferences and explore them. Because there'll be plenty of times when you're um, you're doing tedious chores. Okay, welcome your wildness. That's really, really important, and it's a difficult thing for people to grasp. That when you're meditating, you actually want to sit there vibrating with excitement. You want to, you want this space of meditation to be welcoming towards all of your wild impulses. It should feel saucy like an affair. You're having an affair with, with the life force. Uh, and um, there's something maybe a little risky. Like in the, um, in the Krishna worship in Bhakti, the, even the housewives would sneak off in the middle of the night to play with Krishna down by the river. And they're risking everything. They're tiptoeing away from their children and their husbands lying asleep. And they're going off to to party with Krishna. And they're risk they're risking everything. You know, it's an affair. They're having an affair with God. So meditation, you want it to to be inclusive of all of your tones. You want to be free to be totally exhausted, totally disgusted with everything. And 
and other times, just, oh, what an incredible relief. I get to sit here and just savor the experience of being alive. So it's like an indulgence. Because how much time do we have to meditate in a day? I mean, we're all lucky if we get 20 minutes a day, really. So we've got, we've got to plunge right into being renewed and rejuvenated, letting go of stress, and and letting um, our own inner life force rejuvenate us and heal heal us, breathe new life into our wounded places. And then one final tip here, both for engaging with the verses and for meditation practice itself. You write, develop expression that is commensurate with your communion. Yeah. Yeah, because you can go both ways. Um, meditators can develop such a rich sense of their inner life, especially over a period of a year or two, that they develop all these energies, they're seeing all these things in their inner world. And it can actually create loneliness if, if they don't know how to speak from it. Like it's really challenging to speak from the heart or speak from the belly or speak from other places in the body. It's an advent it's really an adventure to find language or dance moves or touches, ways of touching where we're coming from inside the body. So when people meditate um, and they get a few hundred or a few thousand hours of meditation and they've developed an inner world, it can become a separate thing than the outer world. And um, and so people get stuck in their meditation, actually, from not, be, it doesn't flow into their outer world. It's a danger for meditators. So it, the way of expressing can be different for each person. It could be singing in a karaoke bar, or dancing, learning to dance, or walking the dogs, being in nature, gardening. But we need to spend hours of time expressing ourselves in a way that feels like we're expressing our own soul out into the world. So it happened to me in my early 20s because I had done so, so much intense training and as a meditation teacher by the time I was 20 that there was a a separation between the inner richness and what I knew how to express interpersonally. It took many years to learn to um, to communicate even a little. I mean, I was so lonely and um, I felt communion surfing and being by the ocean and under the ocean. 
felt the communion, and I felt communion when when I was teaching meditation. But the rest of the time, it was just very alone because there was nobody talking like the way that I felt inside. Well, we could say that you took your own advice to heart here, developing expression, commensurate with your communion, in your own writing of this creative, inspiring, luscious, beautiful, delightful version of the Radiant Sutras. You know, it's so funny. Um, <laughs> Sometimes I want to talk to another writer about this, because I feel like the text just is its own living thing, like I showed up and it wrote itself through me. <laughs> but it it's I mean I was there and I was in the I was sober, you know, at four in the morning and all day. So there's no altered state. It was just the work. But it does feel like it's its own thing and it's been and been born. Maybe parents feel this way with their children. Like Look, they just came through me. That that person came from God, and now they're out there running around in the world. But the um, it's almost like I want to say <laughs> I, I I not re- I, I take no responsibility for the beauty. It's like it sang itself into existence. But I don't know if writers are allowed to say that. <laughs> well, Lauren, let's end by hearing one final. Verse. You mentioned to me that the most common place for people to keep a copy of the Radiant Sutras is either by their yoga mat or by their bed, their bedside. That makes good sense. It's certainly where I would keep a copy. But read one final bedside, yoga mat side, Radiance Sutra for us. Oh, okay. Well, let's do 26, which is um, it's so adorable. The one who is at play everywhere says, There is a space in the heart where everything meets. Come here if you want to find me. Mind, senses, soul, eternity, all are here. Are you here? Enter the bowl of vastness that is the heart. Listen to the song that is always resonating. Give yourself to it with total abandon. Quiet ecstasy is here and a steady, regal sense of resting in a perfect spot. You, who are the embodiment of blessing. Once you know the way, the nature of attention will call you to return again and again. Answer that call and be saturated with knowing I belong here. I am at home.
beautiful. It brings up for me one final point I'd love for you to comment on, which is in a section towards the back of the Radiant Sutras, you talk about how in working with meditation students, one of the things you discovered is how radiance is actually our real meditation teacher, our own radiance. Tell me what you mean by that. Hmm. Our own radiance? Yeah. Is a meditation teacher? Yeah. Our own radiance is our real teacher. Hmm. Well, one thing I mean by that is um, there's people glow when they click into their own natural practice, and it, everybody can see it. Like some people feel it more than see it, and some people hear it. But there's an actual tangible sense of illumination when people come into the presence of their own natural way of being, and it's quite remarkable like everyone in a, in a workshop everyone can see it and it happens all the time and almost um, often immediately and so yeah that it does it seems to me that that's the teacher and when I when I'm te- when I'm teaching meditation it's I'm actually I'm the apprentice to that glow in the person to the the radiance of their own life force teaching them and leading them I'm I'm the student, and I'm following that radiance split second by split second as it moves. So I think that's what I meant. I'm talking with Lauren Roach. Lauren has published with Sounds True a new book called The Radiance Sutras, 112 Gateways to the Yoga of Wonder and Delight, a beautiful book to read out loud, to keep by your bed, by your yoga mat. Absolutely a gorgeous way for the text, the Vijnana Bhairava Tantra, to come into language in our contemporary world. Lauren, thank you for all of those early mornings and your devotion to what I'm now calling the VBT. It takes a while to say it, the Vijnana Bhairava Tantra. Mm-hmm. Thank you for your That's devotion it. to the VBT. Yeah. Thank you, Tammy. What a, what a pleasure. And thank you for having the, the courage to go there. Oh, yeah. We're going there. Soundstrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.